Good morning. It's so good again to be with you guys and to worship. I didn't mention my name earlier, but if I'm Rick, I'm Ricky, not if I am. I am Ricky. And if you are new, if I'm Ricky, I wanted you to know who I am. So thank you for being here. I'm honored to be the lead pastor at Fort Caroline. And what a great church this is. I love this congregation. And uh, we welcome all of our new guests today. Thank you for being here. We're in this series called Broken, and we've been spending the last few weeks preparing our hearts for Easter by thinking about what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. And And uh, I was thinking about a joke that uh, one of our church members told me last week, Jimmy Dorsey, he's in here somewhere. Uh, It was about a man who took his wife and his mother-in-law on a trip to Israel, the Holy Land. And it just so happened that while they were there, sadly, in Jerusalem, the mother-in-law died. And the the mortician said, you know, for $5,000, we can ship her body back to the United States. Or for just $150, we could bury her here in the Holy Land. And the man didn't think very long when he said, ship her back. And the funeral director said, really? I mean, you're going to save a lot of money if you just bury her here? And the man thought for a second, and he said, listen, I heard about a guy that died here 2,000 years ago, was buried, and on the third day, rose from the dead. (laughs) That's a risk I can't take. (laughs) So so thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for the joke. So we're talking today not only about the crucifixion of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb of Christ, the grave that is empty today because Jesus rose from the dead. And I'll be honest with you, when I think about gravesides, I have mixed emotions and mixed memories. In 1986, Christmas Eve, my maternal grandfather... Horace Harrelson, passed away. And a few days after Christmas, we had his funeral service. And I distinctly remember when I was a child attending that service and being there at the graveside and watching as my family grieved the passing of my grandfather. And I remember sobbing uncontrollably. It was probably the first time in my young life that death really hit home to me. And I was so emotionally upset. I came home and I yelled at my parents, I said to them, I will never attend another funeral as long as I live, not even yours if you die. That's what I told them. I think God has a sense of humor because I have conducted over 800 funerals in my ministry. And the difference between then and now is I recognize that the greatest news the world has ever heard actually came from a graveside. The empty tomb of Jesus is the greatest news the world could ever hear. Because the empty tomb of Jesus tells us that God is real. And that sin brought death and sorrow into our world, but God loved us in spite of our sin. He sent his son Jesus into the world, God in flesh. And Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a perfect life loving God and loving other people. And he offered that perfect life in exchange for our sinful lives when he died on the cross of Calvary. And he promised us that he would not only die to forgive us of our sin, but on the third day he would rise from the dead, and he did it. And he was vindicated as the Son of God, worthy of our worship, worthy of our trust. 
And he let us know that his empty tomb is the first of many to follow because there's going to come a day when Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, will come back. And the Bible says in the last book of your Bible, book of Revelation, on that day there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death, for all of those things will have passed away. And how do we know that will come true? Because his first promise came true, that he would come out of that grave alive. And he did it. And that doesn't mean that death is still not a scary thing or that we don't grieve. But it does tell us that we have hope. Because we know that the tomb of Jesus is empty. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk to you today about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And in our brief time, we're only going to touch on some evidence. We won't have time to look at the, the whole scope of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to take you to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're just going to look at the first eight verses today. So if you have a Bible, open it up or uh, turn it on. I'll even put the words on the screen. All of these notes today are, are also at our church website. We keep pushing you to that website because everything you need is there. And uh, there are sermon notes that are available for you each Sunday where you can even take your own notes and email them to yourself. Is that not cool? Or email them to someone that needs to hear them uh, and to see them. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll look at verses 1 through 8, where Paul, the apostle, is writing about resurrection. He's not only writing about the resurrection of Jesus, he's also writing about your resurrection that will come one day when Christ returns and we get brand new bodies, just like Jesus had when he walked out of the tomb alive on that first Easter morning. And so you ought to pay attention because this involves you and your future and the hope that you have. And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're saying, I'm not sure if I believe all of this stuff about Jesus rising from the dead. Well, if you've ever thought to yourself at the death of a loved one, you know, I'll see Granny again one day. How do you know any of that's true? The only reason you even think that is because of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and the promise that he made to us that death is not the end, that it will not have the last word over those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, we're going to pick up on a saying. It was a way to memorize the good news of Jesus in his death, burial, and his resurrection. And if you're a skeptic this morning, there's something you ought to think about. What we're about to read, and I'll point it out to you, beginning with verse 3, but some people will say, and especially you see this on the internet a lot on, on these websites where they're trying to debunk Christianity. They say, oh, the, the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, that came 100 or 200 years after Jesus. It was myth and legend and fable that built up over time, but that's not what happened. It's late in Christianity that this idea that Jesus rose from the dead came around. Well, that is absolutely untrue. What we're about to read, a fragment of what the Christians believe, can be traced back to within two years of the resurrection of Jesus. There was not enough time for myth and legend to give us the resurrection story. Within two years, even atheist historians tell us Christians were preaching and teaching the resurrection of Jesus. Within two years of Jesus' crucifixion. As a matter of fact, I was looking this morning. I'm sorry, I'm on a tangent. 
Uh, just indulge your pastor. This is not in my notes. But I was listening this morning or reading this morning. Listen to the Oxford Companion to the Bible. This is what Oxford says. The earliest record of these appearances of the resurrection of Jesus is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. That's what we're about to read. A tradition that Paul received after his apostolic call, certainly not later than his visit to Jerusalem in 35 A.D., when he saw Peter and James, who like him were recipients of appearances of Jesus. So within two years of the crucifixion of Jesus, the Christians are saying Jesus rose from the dead. Listen to Gerd Ludemann, an atheist who's also a New Testament professor at Göttingen. He says the elements in the tradition of the resurrection of Jesus are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus. So don't listen anymore to someone who says this was myth and legend that happened years later. No, this is the testimony from the very beginning of those who knew Jesus firsthand. Uh, enough of that. Let me read. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Listen to this, verse 3. Here it is, the kernel of truth, the crux of Christianity. All the way back to within two years of the death of Jesus, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's, that's uh, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. May God bless the reading of his word. The Apostle Paul is saying, remember, Corinthian church, what I shared with you. It was the most important thing I shared with you. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he was seen alive. And then he starts ticking off the names and the groups of people to whom Jesus, resurrected from the dead, appeared to, validating with convincible proofs that he is the risen Lord and Savior. He says, this is the most important thing. In Fort Caroline Baptist Church, as your pastor, I, I know I sound like a broken record. I know every week you feel like I'm just a broken record, and I am, because the most important thing I remind you of week after week is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I call people to believe in him as their Lord and their Savior. Everything else is great, but that is what's most important because our eternal destinies hang on what we do with Jesus and how we respond to him. So is there evidence or is this all just something we have to take on blind faith? Well, there, there are two lines of evidence. There's personal evidence. We sometimes sing that great hymn that says, He lives, He lives Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. 
And that is true for every single one of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior. There is something we know deep down of the living Lord Jesus that no one can ever argue us out of because we have had a personal encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. But does that mean there's not real evidence as well that we can then point people to to say, here's some of why I believe in the resurrected Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you just three lines of evidence Uh, Three proofs. First of all, we'll see that the resurrection of Jesus was anticipated in Old Testament prophecy. The resurrection of Jesus was anticipated in Old Testament prophecy. Now, you may say, well, I don't believe the Bible's God's word. Well, I understand that if, you, if you're there. I'm not arguing for the inerrancy of Scripture at this point, even though I fully believe it. I'm not arguing at this point for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, although I fully believe that. But what I am saying, if you are a skeptic, you've got to explain how over 300 prophecies concerning the life and the birth and the, the upbringing and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament were fulfilled by him in his life. How do you explain that? Over 300 prophecies. The Apostle Paul picks up on that in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, when he says, For Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and he was raised according to the Scriptures. He's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. We spent the last couple of weeks looking at some of the Old Testament Scriptures that prophesied the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 22, for example begins with a sob, but it ends with a shout of victory because it not only shows us the death of our Savior, but it also shows us his resurrection from the dead. Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 53, and we looked at how he suffered for us. But if we'd have kept reading that, your homework was for you to keep reading Isaiah 53 last week, you will discover that even though he was buried, he also saw the victory of what he did on the cross. In other words, his suffering was not in vain. He saw life again. And he saw that through his death, burial, and resurrection, many would come to faith in Christ. And so so whenever we look at 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul talks about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. The Apostle Peter picked up on this in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. You consider Jerusalem in the first century ground zero. This is the very city that Jesus died in. This is the very city that it is dangerous to be a Christian if you're following Jesus in those early days of Christianity. But Peter gets up boldly and he says in First Corinthians or in the sermon on the day of Pentecost, let me tell you about this Jesus whom you've crucified, but God has raised from the dead. And he quotes from Psalm 16. The, the, even the Lord Jesus. And listen to Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. That's what the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus. You say, oh no, David wrote that Psalm and, and uh, David is, is referring to himself. no. Even Peter says David was writing about himself when he says, you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. He says, because David's grave is still here. This is about Jesus and God promising that Jesus' death would not be the final word. And it wasn't the final word. Jesus, his bones are not rotting away in some Palestinian tomb. Jesus is alive. 
Jesus even reminded a couple of disciples on that first Easter who were going home from Jerusalem only knowing about the death of Christ but not yet having heard anything more than rumors about the resurrection of Christ. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, Jesus says to those two on that road to Emmaus, Oh, you foolish ones. You you find it so hard to believe, do you? What the prophets wrote in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? And the Bible says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't that have been a great Bible study to be a part of? For Jesus to give you an Old Testament survey and say, see this, that's me. See this, that's me. See this, that's me. I fulfilled all of this. Why don't you believe it? And all of this, including his resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus, the evidence for it can be found in Old Testament prophecy. That's why Peter's quoting the scriptures. That's why you see in the book of Acts when Paul is standing before Herod Agrippa on trial for his life, being accused by the Jews as a blasphemer against the God of Israel. And Paul says to King Agrippa, I'm not a blasphemer. I'm only saying and preaching what Moses and the prophets said. That the suffering Savior would come and that he would be victorious. So we see one line of evidence. The resurrection of Jesus was anticipated in Old Testament prophecy. The second line of evidence is the resurrection of Jesus was authenticated by his confirmed mortality. Not only Old Testament prophecy is evidence, but the confirmed mortality of Jesus is evidence for his resurrection. You see, you can't have a resurrection from the dead unless you've got a death as well. You say, wow, I got up early for that. It's pretty, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I understand that. Well, the reason I'm pointing that out is because there are people today, skeptics, who will say Jesus actually didn't die. He really didn't die. He just appeared to die on the cross. He swooned. That's called the swoon theory. Sounds, sounds awesome, doesn't it? Swoon theory. Basically, the swoon theory says that Jesus absolutely lived, and yes, he was crucified by the Romans outside the city walls of Jerusalem, and yes, it appeared he died when his head bowed on the cross, but actually, he just slipped into a deep coma. And so they retrieved his body from the cross, and they placed it in this tomb, and they covered it with aromatic spices, and then they rolled the stone and closed up the tomb. And the coolness of that tomb and the power of those spices and aromatics revived him, and he got up. And we can't explain this part, but he rolled a 2,000-pound stone away from the tomb, He got past Roman guards who were professional guards and they let him limp out of that tomb and he went to his disciples and they just thought that he had risen from the dead. And he didn't tell them otherwise, so he's a liar. He he let people believe that he rose from the dead, but he didn't really. 
Friend, it takes more faith to believe that garbage than the clear, consistent testimony of eyewitnesses who said he died and he rose from the dead because we saw him alive. The scriptures are very clear whenever Paul says, not only did Christ die for our sins according to the scriptures, but he was buried. Paul is making a point. He's saying, point number one, Christ died for our sins. What's the proof he died? He was buried. That's what you do with dead people. You bury them. The New Testament Gospels refer to Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary like this. It says, he died. Or another one says, he breathed his last. Another Gospel writer says that Jesus bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. Father, into your hands I trust my spirit. The Gospels even tell us that when the Roman soldiers came to Jesus on the cross to break his legs... They did not do it because they saw he was already dead. These are professional executioners who knew that he was already dead. By the way, why would they break his legs? They would break the legs of crucifixion victims so that those victims would hurry up and die. Otherwise, they could continue to push themselves up on their nail-pierced feet and catch a breath before they slumped back with the weight of their body on their hands. And it would be this constant back and forth of pushing themselves up on their feet to catch a breath and get pressure off their chest and lungs. And then they would collapse back on their nail-pierced wrists and hands. And they would break their legs so they can't do that anymore. And they're going to die quicker on the cross. But when Jesus is the one they're looking at to break his legs, they don't have to because he was already dead. Think about how silly the swoon theory is when you consider all that Jesus endured leading up to the cross and at the cross and his burial, which no one disputes. He sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. A real physical problem when a person can find themselves under tremendous duress. The capillaries in the forehead and the skull and the scalp will burst and blood will come forth as if the person is sweating blood. After his arrest, he is dragged from one mock sham trial to the next, back and forth between the Jewish Sanhedrin, their Supreme Court, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the province of Judea. Back and forth, six different trials he has to endure where his life hangs in the balance. Once he is convicted and condemned to die, he is given over to the Roman soldiers who flog him. They scourge him. They beat him with a whip called the cat of nine tails. It was one whip that had nine leather thongs on it. And within those leather thongs were interwoven bits of glass or bone so that for every blow, it would rip the flesh. Even people from the Days of Roman crucifixion said that a person's body, their back, would look like just ribbons of flesh hanging off their back. It would expose their bowels, it exposed their organs as it ripped away the flesh. That's what they did to Jesus. They planted a crown of thorns into his brow. They put a robe on his back and a reed in his hand and they mocked him as the king of the Jews and they slapped his face and they pulled out his beard and they spit in his face. For hours this man was tortured. And then he was made to carry that crossbeam 
to his own death, a crossbeam of wood that weighed between 75 and 90 pounds, Jesus having lost so much blood, having been up for hours without sleep or rest, no food or water, collapses under the weight. And Simon of Serene has to carry the cross beam the rest of the way. On Golgotha, he is stripped naked of all of his clothes. He is laid out on that cross beam where his hands are nailed through the wrist with Roman iron. His feet are nailed to that center beam, and he is suspended. And there he hangs for hours, for hours, until he dies. The swoon theory would have you believe that Jesus doesn't really die after all of that. He's just faking it. And that somehow, when he came out of that tomb, however he got out, he didn't look like someone who was within an inch of his life. Oh, no. He convinced his followers he was victorious, risen, conqueror, like I said I would. Really? Give me a break. I have seen grown men, specimens of health, go through a simple surgery and moan and groan in pain. Wanting some painkillers because of the pain that they're in after that surgery. Some of you nurses know what I'm talking about. We men can be wimps at times. I remember when I had my surgery and they said, what's your pain level? Zero to 10. I said, 10's not far enough. Do you have a greater chart that goes to 15, 16? They said, we're going to give you some medicine. Tell us, we'll come back in 30 minutes, ask you later, how's your pain? Came back, I said, it's a 9.5. We're going to give you another kind of pain med. How's it now? It is probably an eight. Well, we're going to give you another pain med. Jesus endured more than you and I could ever imagine. Several years ago, the Journal of the American Medical Association put together a team of doctors and others who studied crucifixion, particularly the crucifixion of Jesus. And in this lengthy article, this is what they conclude, quote, Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. I don't care what your favorite skeptic posts on a bulletin board on the internet. It does not change the fact that Jesus really did die on the cross of Calvary. And young people, I know you can always find somebody who will say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And I know that there's all kinds of reasons to not believe. But when you take away all of the hyperbole and the anger and the animosity against theists, and you just look at the evidence, the evidence is clear. Jesus fulfilled prophecies, hundreds of them that said he would come, he would live, he would suffer, he would die, and he would rise from the dead. And he also was affirmed to have died on the cross. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And then the final bit of evidence we're going to talk about today is what I would call the eyewitness testimony. The eyewitness testimony, the resurrection of Jesus was affirmed by eyewitness testimony. You cannot dismiss this. By the way, this is one of the reasons skeptics want you to believe that the theology 
of the resurrection and the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus happened 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100 years after Jesus lived. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to take away all the eyewitnesses who were there when these events in Jerusalem happened. But when we find even atheistic historians telling us within two years of the death of Jesus, it was being preached and proclaimed in Jerusalem that Jesus rose from the dead, you now have to take those eyewitnesses seriously. And Paul tells us about the eyewitness testimony when he uses the words, he appeared. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared. Maybe your translation reads, he was seen. It means he was visibly seen, witnessed by people to whom Jesus appeared. And appeared means he was taking the initiative to show up. They weren't looking for him. He went looking for them to convince them he was alive. Not one of the disciples were at the tomb early that morning looking for the risen Jesus. Even the two Marys who went that morning were looking for a rotting corpse to finish the burial preparations of Jesus. As women, they knew the men began the process, and they're going to have to go and get it right. we got to finish this thing. So the first century Christians were not expecting a resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't concoct a story about a resurrection. They had nothing to gain except persecution and their own personal deaths by preaching a resurrection of Jesus. No, they didn't go looking for Jesus. He went looking for them when he walked out of that tomb alive. Who does he appear to? He appears, first of all, to Cephas. That's Aramaic for the one we call Simon Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus. Why does he appear to Cephas? Probably because it was Cephas, it was Peter, whom Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. You'll deny that you even know me, Peter. No, I will not. I'll die with you. Even if these other disciples bail out on you, you can count on me, Jesus. And just like Jesus said, when Jesus was put on trial, don't you know this Jesus? I don't know him. I do not know him. I do not know him. Three times he denied Jesus. The Bible tells us there was a personal private appearance of Jesus to Peter on Easter. We're not told any of the details. It was between the two of them. Later, we're told Jesus appeared to Peter again when Peter's out there fishing late one night. And early that morning, Jesus shows up and cooks him breakfast and then takes Peter aside and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And the Bible says on the third time, Jesus asked, Peter was grieved in his heart. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Why did Jesus ask Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? How many times had G Peter denied knowing Jesus? Three times. He was giving Peter a do-over. Okay, Peter, go feed my sheep, tend my sheep, care for my flock. And Peter lived the rest of his life, and he died as a martyr preaching Jesus is alive. He also mentions the 12. This is the formal description of the disciples of Jesus. It's actually the 12 minus Judas who's taken his life by this point. And Thomas wasn't even there on that first Easter evening when Jesus appeared. But he's saying, Paul is saying, Jesus appeared to his own disciples who knew him, who had spent three years with him. 
And at first they thought he was a ghost and he has to say, I'm not a ghost, it's me, look at me, touch my hands, handle me, feel and see that it's me, give me something to eat, I'm not a ghost, it's really me. And then Paul says Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. 500 eyewitnesses at one time. Lee Strobel, who was once an atheist and who investigated the claims of Christianity, particularly the resurrection, in a way to disabuse Christians of their faith, wanting to show that the Christian faith was based on nothing but myth and legend, in the course of his investigation, actually became a Christian. And as a journalist with the Chicago Tribune, he he wrote... If you took 500 eyewitnesses in any court of law and you spent 15 minutes with each one of them cross-examining those eyewitnesses, you would have over 128 hours of eyewitness testimony. You would have, you would have about five days of unbroken testimony from eyewitnesses. Tell me that wouldn't stand up in a court of law. And Paul even says, listen, most of these 500 people who physically saw Jesus alive, whom Jesus appeared to, they're still around. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Yes, some have fallen asleep. That doesn't mean fell asleep while the preacher was talking. It means they've died. He's just being polite. They died. Some of them have died. He says, but the vast majority of them are alive. So if you don't want to believe me, go do your own investigation. And in the first century, don't you think skeptics and and those who wanted to destroy Christianity would have done their due diligence, and yet recorded history has no single disciple of Jesus ever recanting their faith. Not a single eyewitness to the resurrection ever changed their story. But Christian history also teaches the vast majority of them died as martyrs because they would not stop teaching the resurrection of Jesus he also says Jesus appeared to James. This is, this is probably, I believe, the brother of Jesus. We're told in John chapter 7 that James and the brothers, they didn't believe in Jesus. He's doing his public ministry, but they don't believe him. We're told in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, that Jesus' family showed up to take him home because they thought he had lost his mind. Let's just quietly get Jesus and go home. All this talk about being the Messiah. We okay. We we'll take you to see a doctor. We'll get you some help. Why don't you just stay quietly at home? They did not believe, and yet even secular historians say that the first leader, one of the first leaders of the Jerusalem church, was James, the brother of Jesus. How did that happen? How do we get from a brother who doesn't believe his brother is the son of God resurrected from the dead to where he is one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem dying for his own brother who died for him? How do you account for that transformation? I can tell you this. Only one thing would make me change my mind about my brother. I don't think he's the son of God. But if he said he was, and if he lived a perfect life where I always got in trouble with mom, but he never did, wouldn't you hate to have that kind of a brother? Always mom's favorite, never gives her any trouble. I'm always the bad guy. And if my brother said to me on three different occasions, I'm going to suffer, 
I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. I'll be beaten. I will die, but on the third day I'll rise from the dead. And then he pulled that off. I would believe anything else he ever told me. He also appeared to the apostles. And then Paul says, he even appeared to me, least of all. A skeptic, a religious terrorist who was trying to stamp out Christianity, but Jesus appeared to even him, changed his life, went from being a murderer to the greatest missionary the church has ever known. How do you account for that life transformation? The resurrection of Jesus. Why did Jesus appear to these people? Was it to scare them? No, it was to show them with proof that what had happened to his body was not a figment of their imagination to dispel any rumor and to demonstrate to them he truly had died, but he truly was alive from the dead, just as he promised. So the next time you're on some forum and a bunch of atheists are telling you it's a hallucination, this is not how hallucinations work. Hundreds of people may hallucinate but they're going to hallucinate all kinds of different things. They don't all hallucinate the same thing. You know what happens when you get hundreds of people who were saying the same thing? I saw the same thing. I heard the same thing. You know what you have? You have proof that what happened was real, not a hallucination. And this is not a conspiracy perpetrated on the human race by those first followers of Jesus. Can you imagine what it would take to keep that kind of conspiracy going? Chuck Colson of the Watergate scandal, counsel to the president, once wrote, is it really likely that a deliberate cover-up, a plot to perpetrate a lie about the resurrection could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles, the scrutiny of the early church councils, the horrendous purge of the first century believers who were cast by the thousands to the lions for refusing to renounce the lordship of Christ? Take it from one who was inside the Watergate web looking out, who fought, saw firsthand how vulnerable a cover-up is. Nothing less than a witness as awesome as the resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and Lord. He says, we couldn't keep our lie together. We couldn't keep our story straight just with the threat of going to jail. These guys kept their story straight. Nobody ever recounted, recanted their story because what they saw was real. You guys have not listened fast enough. We're out of time. But here's the bottom line today. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose from the third day according to the Scriptures, and he was seen. That is the crux of Christianity. That is based not on what somebody hopes to be true, but what eyewitnesses told us was true. And the Bible says your eternal destiny hangs in the balance of what you do with this information today. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Today, turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ, and let him be your Lord and your Savior. For those of us who are already Christians, let us be strengthened in our faith, and let us rededicate ourselves to telling this good news, the greatest news the world's ever heard.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the gospel. I pray that lives will be changed as we do business with Jesus in this very moment. For those who need to be saved from the penalty and punishment of their sin, I pray that they will turn to the living Lord Jesus Christ right now. Turning from their sin, trusting him to be their Lord, their Savior, their forgiver, their eternal life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.